This month on Energy Voices, we're going to explore one of the most contentious, interesting, and technologically advanced topics in the world of energy, nuclear power. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. We're going to cover off the history, the safety, the advanced technology, and student perspectives on nuclear power. Nuclear power is one of those issues that can be instantaneously polarizing based on various arguments, and the goal of this session is to give a bit deeper perspective on what the reality of nuclear power is. First, we're going to have an interview with Jason Donov, an esteemed professor at the University of Calgary, to give us a bit of history on nuclear power and the various technologies at play. Next, we're going to have an interview with Simon Irish, the CEO of Terrestrial Energy, one of the leaders in developing Generation 4 nuclear technology, and specifically molten salt reactors. We're also going to hear from the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, who's going to discuss the role that the safety regulator plays in ensuring the safety and reliability of nuclear power in Canada. We're also going to finish the show with a new partnered produced piece with the Alberta Youth Council on the Environment. They're going to share some youth perspectives on nuclear power for you all. As always, you can follow along using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook or on Twitter, and you can download all previous episodes by searching for Energy Voices in your favorite podcast service. Without further ado, here's this month's episode of Energy Voices. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Jason Donev, who's a professor in the Department of Physics focusing on energy issues at the University of Calgary. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. So I'm excited to bring you on to talk about one of the historically contentious issues in the world of energy, but also one of, in my opinion, the most fascinating areas of energy, which is nuclear power. Um, so before we dive into some of the interview questions, uh, give us a little background. What what got Mr. Donov interested in the world of nuclear from a, a research and a, a teaching perspective? Well, uh, a while ago, the University of Calgary was interested in having somebody come to the University of Calgary to be a nuclear power expert who was at arm's length from the Canadian nuclear industry because Alberta was, at the time, thinking of getting a nuclear reactor, a nuclear power reactor. We have a research reactor, but we're thinking of uh, generating electricity from nuclear. So uh, during the job interview, they said, could you teach a course on nuclear power? And I needed a job, so the answer was absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I, I actually came with a lot of the same preconceptions that a lot of people have that, you know, hearing about Chernobyl and, and Three Mile Island, and this was in the days before Fukushima, and and really wrongly believing that nuclear power was dangerous. And it was, it was really kind of funny. The more I learned about nuclear power, the more passionately I just started going, why are we not doing more of this? Um, which has been my experience with everybody who learns about nuclear power. And, and, Maybe give us a bit of the, the walkthrough of, of the steps that it took to get you there. Frame frame the nuclear issue in your mind of sort of what you think the existing perceptions on it are um, and what might have changed your perceptions. Well, when we talk about nuclear, a number of things are, are really sort of floating around in the back of people's minds. And, and those those things are all negative. Those things are, are words like nuclear bomb or, uh, you know, what do you do with the waste or cancer all these, all these negative things. And what I discovered was that, first of all, nuclear bombs don't really have that much to do with nuclear power. Sort of like, you know, the electric chair doesn't have that much to do with electric lighting. Um, and 
And in terms of, of nuclear waste, uh, I was really surprised to discover that nuclear does not have any pollution at all. And, and learning the difference between pollution, which is something that goes out and affects the environment, and waste, which is simply a product that we produce that we don't want anymore, was really shocking for me. So discovering that nuclear waste is actually the best thing about nuclear power was, was just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, further learning about how nuclear medicine, which has been you know, this offshoot of the nuclear technology, has saved millions of lives with, with cancer and other, other medical treatments, just, just kept blowing my mind. And the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just personally, one of the things that really opened my mind uh, into some of the, the sort of modern advancements and developments in nuclear was the the documentary Pandora's Box. Um, and I think to your point about some of the misconceptions about nuclear, um, even the, the ter- concepts like radiation and radiation poisoning was something that I wasn't particularly familiar with myself. Uh, and and I may misquote this, but I remember from the, the film that it was that the radiation levels at Copacabana Beach in Brazil are significantly higher than in some of the immediate areas around Chernobyl and Fukushima, that there's naturally occurring radiation everywhere in our world, um, and that's sort of a, a natural thing that happens, as opposed to this thought that it just sort of emanates from a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't remember the name of the beach in Brazil specifically, but yes, there's there's a beach in Brazil. There's, there's also a place in uh, Iran by the Caspian Sea, a place called Ramsar, Iran, that has... Uh, really, really high natural levels of radiation. It's, it's interesting. A, a former student of mine is now doing research showing that small amounts of radiation may in fact be helpful in preventing cancer. It's, it's almost like a, you know, a vaccine against getting cancer. And we, we, it seems like the human body may actually benefit from from small amounts of radiation. It's, it sounds like the next version of a glass of wine a day. It's like in small amounts, it's good for you. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, it was uh, Pandora's. The Pandora's Promise movie has done an awful lot to to make a lot of people question things like radiation. You know, living next to a coal plant actually exposes people to more radiation than than living next to a nuclear plant. Hmm. The Three Mile Island accident back in 1979 released less radiation than a normally operating coal plant does here in Alberta. And and where are we at today? So the I was hoping you could sort of first paint for us a bit of a picture of when the nuclear energy industry sort of really from a from a generation perspective when the nuclear energy uh, industry really got formed how it got off the ground and where are we at today in terms of global generation so uh initially uh nuclear power is you know comes from the discovery of the nucleus which was Kieran King you know Rutherford the guy who discovered the nucleus of of nu- of Adams was working in McGill, and you know I, I wish Canadians were were a little more proud of having this noble history of nuclear of nuclear science dating back to this early work, the first part of the 20th century in in Montreal. Um, so you, you certainly can't have nuclear power before that, other than the stuff that comes from the sun. Um, and quite rapidly, the the immense amount of energy over the course of the next decades was was realized. Uh, unfortunately, it was first realized by a team of scientists down in the U.S. working on working on bombs. And after World War II, Canada made a very deliberate decision to, what we say, not proliferate. Canada had the ability to pursue nuclear weapons, 
and actively decided to build nuclear power plants instead. And then Canada was also a forerunner, and, you know, very much at the forefront of nuclear medicine uh, through the end of the 40s, early 50s. And then end of the 50s, 1960s, you start getting seeing nuclear power and then eventually commercial nuclear power plant coming online. Uh, Three Mile Island certainly slowed things down. Chernobyl in 1986 brought the nuclear industry largely to a standstill. And then the more recent accident with, uh, with Fukushima a few years ago has slowed down a lot of the nuclear power plant construction projects. But interestingly, in China specifically, they're back on schedule. They're, they're building their nuclear power plants. And uh, China is hoping to have an awful lot of nuclear power coming on their grid over the course of the next couple decades. Mm -hmm. So we have 420, roughly, nuclear power plants operating in the world, and it produces roughly a sixth of the world's electricity. Mm -hmm. And there's and there's some really interesting jurisdictions as well, like the the country of France isn't who you'd probably originally think of as as a as a nuclear nation, and and they have one of the lowest greenhouse gas profiles of any modern nation in the world because they have such a significant portion of um, their power generated through nuclear. Yeah, France back in the 1970s was hit really hard by the the oil crisis with OPEC and so forth. Um, because they're actually generating electricity from oil, which is something that's not done a lot of places these days. It's still done, but, but not very often. Um, so the then president of France got up and said, we have no coal, we have no oil, we have no choice. And, and they went quite aggressively for nuclear power. And as a result, as you say, they've got this really, really low uh, greenhouse gas footprint for their, their electricity sector, and it's it's amazing how low it is. Mm -hmm. And and I want to use the the sort of touch points that you made on on Chernobyl and Fukushima as an opportunity um, to go a little bit beyond the headlines and get in your words uh, what really happened with both of those incidents, and 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 maybe some some factors that you felt were at play in both of those incidents. Sure, uh, let's let's start with Fukushima because despite the one despite that being well, that's, that's what's in, in people's minds more. Mm -hmm. uh, let me let me open, open up by saying I would eat the fish right outside the nuclear power plant today, right now. Uh, the fish are safe. It's fine. Um, I believe that the evacuation around the power plants, in retrospect, has, prov has proven to be unnecessary. I'm not saying that they made a mistake in doing that, because in the heat of the moment, you make the... You make the decision based on the information you had. But there was never any real danger to anybody off-site. Um, and all told, the Fukushima disaster, for, for all of its press, really only killed five people, and none of that was with radiation release, which is what everybody's been really freaked out about. It's really sad to me that almost 20,000 people were killed in the tsunami, and nobody talks about that outside of Japan. Everybody's talking about the nuclear power implications. And, and there's really a much bigger story here about the basically worst natural disaster to ever strike Japan. And we're focused on this one little tiny aspect of it because that's that's what people are interested in. Mm -hmm. And and just to sort of jump in, I know we still want you to talk about Chernobyl, but I just find it such a fascinating um, sort of expose at the human psyche that we we can have 
like everything in the energy industry is is a cost benefit trade off dis discussion, and we've had hundreds of years of of coal mining and we've we've there's sort of jokes that are made in media about getting the black lung and and the dangers associated with coal mining that kill hundreds of people a year and and that's fascinating i didn't know that there was only five direct deaths attributable to to fukushima um in the grand scheme that's probably staggeringly low in comparison to some other generation sources uh, even even other generation within that accident <laughs> my one of my favorite things from from that that incident, looking back, is there's a I, I have a, a picture of of somebody who's talking about the what was going on with Fukushima, and there's this flaming building in the background, and it's not the nuclear power plant. It was actually an oil refinery, <laughs> and the, the the media had been so crazed and craving these dramatic images for nuclear power, that they had to take these other sources of energy, which were actually killing people, and, and sort of superimpose it on the nuclear story, because that was, that was what was selling. It's fascinating. Now, um, Chernobyl. Yeah. We need to talk about Chernobyl, mm -hmm. because Chernobyl was really, really awful. Chernobyl was a horribly designed reactor uh, from, from the Soviets, who, uh, you know, who, who were very bright people. I'm uh, I, I have nothing against I have nothing against people from that area, but the governments that that were in place at the time were were truly horrific. Um, so there was there was a really nasty uh, accident at the nuclear power plant. There was no containment. This is um, this is sort of like driving a car down the freeway with with no seatbelt and no windshield and no roof and no doors. Uh, I mean, just the safety things that weren't there with Chernobyl to the Western mind are just staggering. Uh, a fire broke out as a result of the nuclear accident. Uh, the firefighters were sent in without any radiation protection at all. It was really horrific behavior, and 56 people died. So it is terrible that, that you know, these these fifty some odd people died largely of radiation effects, um, but it's also not nearly as bad as we tend to as we tend to make it out to be. Uh, there's a lot of hydro disasters that have actually killed thousands and thousands of people that we just don't talk about. Mm -hmm. um, now, additional cancers that have come as a result of of Chernobyl are difficult to detect because so many people get cancer anyways, but the best estimates are from the, uh, the Chernobyl Forum, if you will, from the World Health Organization that estimates that there are possibly as many as 4,000 additional cases of cancer, which is terrible. I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm in no way excusing that, but it is also important to remember that one, that's an upper limit. Two, that's the single worst thing that has ever happened with nuclear power. Bar, bar none. Mm -hmm. um, and it never should have happened. It never should have happened. Um, but I also like to say that we need to compare nuclear power on an even footing with, with other generation sources. And unfortunately, any industrial activity on a large scale will eventually wind up taking some human life. And we need to minimize that. Mm 
we certainly need to minimize that. And, and are there any reactors on the global grid right now that still have that same safety profile? The same safety profile? No. The same type of reactor? I honestly don't know. If they're called RBMK reactors. I know that the RBMK reactors actually ran for a good 20 years after the Chernobyl accident, but they changed up the safety profile. They put containment around it. They 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 went back and, and fixed a bunch of things that had been wrong with it, mm-hmm. which is what we're seeing after Fukushima as well. Basically, every nuclear power plant in the world sat down after Fukushima and, and has spent years going, okay, we've prepared for every accident we can think of. And with the Fukushima accident, it's important to note that the earthquake that it was hit with and the tsunami that it was hit with were bigger than people believed were possible at the time those were built. So you'll hear the CNSC, I think, talk about, um, so what happens if something happens that we hadn't thought of? Well, we thought of that. <laughs> and and I've, I've really been quite impressed with what the CNSC has been doing and, and other regulators around the world have been doing in terms of saying, let's get creative and say, what is what would happen with a beyond design basis event? If things that we think are impossible happened anyways, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's just a, a challenge that I don't think any other source of power generation needs to consider. That in the, the worst case scenario for wind is that there's a massive earthquake and your wind turbine topples over into the field that it's sitting in. There's not sort of those same... I don't think there's that same level of scrutiny that exists about any other source of power generation in the world. Yeah, I mean, solar panels, which sound really safe until you realize that people are putting them on their roofs and, and falling off and, and dying, and it's it's terrible that that this would happen to anybody. And, you know, it's not that it's happening to that many people, but it's it's certainly happening to too many people. But once again, it's it's not part of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think you've shared some just really interesting perspectives and, and some of the data on the, the incidents, I think, is something that a lot of our listeners won't have necessarily heard before. Um, so I want to I want to you, you mentioned the, the RKBM reactor and I actually wanted to, to play a little bit of a fun game with you um, because there's so uh, we use the term nuclear power. Um, but there's so many different aspects in the nuclear industry and there's so many different types of nuclear power. And so I wanted to, to finish off this segment just by doing a, a rapid fire overview with you where we give you less than 60 seconds each to describe some of the major um, aspects of nuclear generation and some of the major nuclear technologies. So do you think you're, do you think you're up for that? Uh, yes. Uh, name that reactor, apparently. It's, it's, the, <laughs> it's the latest game show. Let's go for it. <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, ABC you'll pick this one up but if they do you'll be the first contestant (laughs) there we go okay uh okay 60 seconds on the clock and give us your best overview of nuclear fission fission is taking a large nucleus the two biggest naturally occurring nuclei uranium and thorium and breaking them apart into smaller nuclei to get energy from it this is how nuclear reactors work today that was only 15 seconds, so it was lightning. Okay, uh, and next one up, we've got um, nuclear fusion. Fusion is the process of taking small nuclei, like hydrogen, and turning them into slightly larger nuclei, like helium. This can be done in a laboratory setting, but is not yet something we can actually get electricity from in any way, shape, or form. This occurs naturally on the sun, which is oddly 
where the word helium comes from, from the Greek helios, which means sun. We discovered helium up on the sun from this fusion process before we discovered it here on Earth. Boom, 32 seconds. Um, okay, one of the, the newer types of nuclear reactors, uh, what is a thorium reactor? A thorium reactor. Uh, thorium reactors don't really exist. Thorium is a fuel. Uh, thorium is the second largest naturally occurring nucleus after uranium. There has been a lot of interest in what are called molten salt reactors, which would, in theory, be able to burn thorium. But it's interesting to note that the homemade, awesomest reactor of all, can-do reactors built here in Canada, one of the uh, top 10 engineering achievements of the last century in Canada, um, actually can burn thorium already. So I, I regret to say, your, your listeners are going to be shocked, there's no such thing as a thorium reactor. Okay. Myth dispelled. Uh, well, the next one I had was can-do, so you gave it a quick plug, but what is the can-do reactor, and why is it one of the top 10 Canadian engineering feats? Uh, it's just awesome. It's it's such an amazing reactor. It, uh, it uses naturally occurring uranium. A light water reactor needs to have the uranium go through a complicated process called enrichment. There's two types of uranium, uranium-235, which has 143 neutrons, and uranium-238, which has 146 neutrons. Uh, and CANDU is able to just take the uranium as it occurs in nature, uh, stick it into the reactor, you get nuclear power out. CANDU reactors are so amazingly good at using nuclear power, the fuel that exists. You can even take the nuclear waste from an American reactor and stick it into a Canadian reactor and get electricity out of it. That's fascinating. Uh, and that was 48 seconds, so you're still under time. Uh, the last one that we have for you, you've mentioned it already, but what is a molten salt reactor? Molten salt reactors are awesome. They're really cool. They're unfortunately science fiction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there was a plan a few decades ago down in the United States to build what's called a molten salt reactor. Rather than having a solid fuel, it's important to note that uh, the fuel that goes into a nuclear power plant is basically just a big metal chunk. Uh, and it comes out just a big metal chunk. Nuclear waste is not a green glowing goo like we see on the Simpsons. But a molten salt reactor gets a little closer to that in that it takes a liquid salt uh, that has usually the thorium or the uranium in it, and then it runs through a process. And the amazing thing about molten salt reactors is that you could actually take even the fuel from a can-do reactor, so the uh, used fuel from a can-do reactor could be put into a molten salt reactor to get 50 times as much electricity. So the used fuel that we have here in Canada could actually power Canada's entire electricity grid in a molten salt reactor for decades to come. We need to start developing these. These reactors could be developed, they should be developed, and you should talk to people from Terrestrial Energy about their great ideas about doing that. Well, you, you gave the perfect segue because Terrestrial Energy will be up next on the show. So uh, that brings us to the end of our questions for you, Jason, and I, I have to give you my subtle uh, clap of approval for ripping through that many technologies in nuclear in that short of time. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, we, re we really appreciate it. And, and as the, the industry develops and, and as our, our audience interest develops in nuclear, we'd love to have you back on a future episode. Thank you. Okay, take care, Jason. All right, bye.
Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome the Chief Executive Officer of Terrestrial Energy, Simon Irish, to the show. So welcome to the show, Simon. Sean, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be with you today. So we wanted to bring you on the show so that we could talk to and, and discuss the future of nuclear energy with uh, the CEO of one of the really innovative company that's pushing some of the newest uh, technology in nuclear. So before we dive in, can you give us a, a bit of a background on, on what is terrestrial energy and, and what is the technology that you guys are working on? Yes, uh, terrestrial energy is a uh, Canadian-based nuclear technology company, and we're seeking to develop um, what is referred to as a Generation 4 Advanced Nuclear Reactor System. Um, the current nuclear is probably to, it's best described as Generation 3 or Generation 3 Plus. But there are a group of nuclear fission technologies that are entirely different. They've been defined as Generation 4 nuclear technologies. And some of those technologies, being entirely different, offer completely different commercial and, and industrial possibilities. And So we're looking to develop one of those. And, and what is that basket of Generation 4 technologies that's on the table right now? Well, they, they were um, this, this group of, of uh, very promising next-generation nuclear technologies was defined by the Global International Forum in 2002. Um, there, are, there, are, there are six different technologies. Um, uh, the distinguishing feature about this group of six is that five of them are all, all use a solid fuel in a different way. They use different coolants, different moderators, but they still nonetheless use a solid fuel. One of them is entirely different at the most fundamental level, uh, and that, that reactor design uses a liquid fuel. So this is, this is a reactor design uh, which differs from all the others, advanced nuclear systems and conventional nuclear systems, in one critical and key regard, and that is it uses a liquid fuel. Uh, and that offers a... A, a new set of possibilities, very exciting set of possibilities for advanced nuclear nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And and with with molten salt reactors being um, uh, using a liquid fuel, what is the benefit? So for for the average layperson who who's not up to speed on the the cutting edge of nuclear technology, um, what is the benefit of having a liquid fuel, um, both from a, a power production perspective as well as a safety perspective? Well, the, I think you, the benefit, the key benefit is that you have a reactor system because it's so fundamentally different, has a completely different safety profile. Um, and there are advantages in starting from a completely different point with respect to safety because what drives the cost in, uh, with respect to the operation, the development, the operation and licensing uh, of, of any nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear system is, is, is your safety case. Mm-hmm. Now, Reactor systems today, whether they're generation three or three plus, are um, are safe. They are the, the, the regulators have been responsible in the certainly in North America of looking after these systems for, for 50, 60 years. We have an enormous amount of information and detail and expertise on, on regulating on on on, on operating uh, generation three, generation three plus systems. Um, but the the, the 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 advantage of using a liquid fuel is that you start off with a completely different safety profile. It's a liquid fuel. It has properties um, with respect to its intrinsic safety, which are entirely different and unique to it compared to, compared to, to a solid fuel system. Because you're starting in such a different point with respect to your safety case, 
you end up with a reactor system that has the possibility of having a completely different economic profile. And not just a completely different economic profile, it also has a completely different profile with respect to, to, um, you know, to waste as well. Mm. So it, it's this profile which is so exciting today from a commercial perspective. Mm. And, and where is the development at? Like, are there molten salt reactors that exist in the world right now? Are there, are there bench-scale pilots? Like, give us a sense of the current state of the technology. Well, the current state of the technology is that, um, uh, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe just common from an historical perspective, two of these reactors have been built already and operated uh, some time ago, but that, that two have been built and operated at Oak Ridge National Lab uh, in the U.S., which is a, a preeminent lab in the world for nuclear innovation. Um, now, today, there is a renaissance of interest globally in molten salt reactor technology. And there are another number of programs underway at National Labs. The most, uh, um, um, the most possible high-profile program is the one that's in play today uh, in Shanghai, um, uh, run by the Chinese Academy of Science. Uh, of, of the Chinese Academy of Science. Uh, that, that's a, um, uh, they are uh, committing considerable resources to build up their expertise on this particular unique brand of nuclear technology. But the, the Europeans have had a program underway for some time um, down in Grenoble with respect to um, uh, uh, molten salt um, reactor technology. Uh, and I think what is most interesting today, certainly over the last three to four years, is that is the private sector now is beginning to recognize the commercial opportunity here and beginning to mobilize itself to, uh, to, uh, to develop, for commercial reasons, um, a molten salt reactor system. And obviously, we're one of those private companies seeking to, 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 to build one of these, these reactors with a commercial intention in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and what is the, the scale at which uh, you're seeking to de- develop these projects? Like, how, what's the, the sort of megawatt scale or the gigawatt scale that you're looking to build these at? Well, these, these, these reactor systems are, uh, have applications globally throughout industrial production, both in terms of industrial production requiring heat, industrial heat and power. So what you, you don't want to do is have a, you know, if you like, a, a, a sizing strategy that you see with conventional nuclear. With conventional nuclear, it comes in one size, basically enormous. Mm-hmm. Very expensive project. It's actually pretty. Uh, it, it takes a long time to build these things. They're, they're constructed on a bespoke basis. Each one is different, um, and they take considerable time to you know to permit, uh, to, to, to construct, and to, to commission. Um, with our reactor system, because it is, it has so many uh, um, uh, touch points throughout industry, we are looking to uh, um, formulate our technology uh, in, in in three sizes. Uh, the first is an 80 megawatt thermal size, the smallest size. We have a middle size of 300 megawatt thermal, and the largest one is uh, is 600 megawatt thermal. So, in if you used those units for for power production, mm-hmm. the smallest one is about 32 megawatt electrical. The middle one is about uh, 140 uh, megawatt electrical. And the largest one is is um, is about 200 and 291 megawatt electrical. Mm-hmm. Um, so this 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 technology then uh, is is applicable both to on-grid applications and off-grid applications, and all those sizes fall under the broad rubric of a small modular reactor. And small modular the the, the market opportunities today 
the small module reactors is, is, um, is tremendous. Mm-hmm. The and question is, what technology you put into that small module reactor? Mm-hmm. That's a big commercial question. Yeah, and, and the topic of, of microgrid and off-grid is something that's really sort of developed over the past five years. And, and nuclear power isn't often something that's thought of as, as having the ability to be an off-grid solution. So what is it about molten salt reactors that makes them a potential viable off-grid solution? Well, with off-grid solutions, you have to be able to scale them down. You have to have, you have, to have a reactor system which has an economic pro, uh, profile which scales down very well indeed. Solid fuel reactor systems don't have that ability. They, 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 they must utilize uh, economies of scale because of the substantial costs associated with licensing, development, um, uh, construction of solid fuel reactor systems. The, the molten salt reactor system, because it has an entirely different safety profile, it has an entirely different economic profile, it has entirely different economic dynamics, which basically allows you to scale the reactor down. So for the first time now, you have a small modular industrial reactor, something that, that can be built, uh, out of, uh, that, that can be scaled at about 80 megawatt thermal, mm-hmm. uh, um, 32.5 megawatt electrical, um, and that reactor system can be placed off-grid and compete with um, off-grid diesel in a diesel power production mm-hmm. and, and do so in, in, a, in a very, very competitive manner. So if off-grid power production for diesel is about, let's say, upwards of you know, 25 cents a kilowatt hour upwards, mm-hmm. depending on how difficult it is to, to bring your diesel to site, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, with a small modular reactor, you know, our smallest version, you have the possibility of having a, uh, a, a, a source of industrial power off-site, which is far, far more competitive than diesel off-site. Mm-hmm. Far more competitive. And, and so, that's, we, we think that's, that's very exciting from a commercial perspective. And, and so what are the barriers there? So being significantly more cost-competitive than off-grid diesel sounds very appealing mm-hmm. to at first blush, but what are the challenges that you guys face in deploying that sort of technology, be it off-grid or on-grid? Mm-hmm. The, um, I mean, the challenges are not principally commercial because in, all industry really wants is a better, more convenient way to boil a kettle of water. To put it very simply, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the challenges are, um, are um, uh, um, you know, advancing uh, the this technology through a regulatory process, which is very exacting. Um, the the uh, we're, we're seeking to do uh, uh, to seek a license for our first commercial plant uh, and a license for our first site uh, in, in Canada, and that will require, require us to subject that site and, 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 and our, our, our nuclear power plant to full scrutiny uh, um, from the, 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 the CNSC. Um, now, this is a, a reactor technology, um, and um, the, in, terms of, in terms of challenges, uh, uh, our challenge as a business is to make the safety case to the CNSC and to progress um, um, the, the, the licensing of that, that, that first plant uh, um, through the, um, uh, you know, the very detailed uh, review process that, um, uh, that, that um, uh, the CNSC is, is, uh, is, uh, has a mandate to conduct. And and what is what are the timelines that you're working on from from mm-hmm. maybe give us a bit of the the history of the company. So when when did you guys go from sort of ideation that this was a potential viable business to um, what is sort of the earliest possible uh, timeline in which mm-hmm. you'll have power come online? 
The company was formed um, uh, in January 2013, mm-hmm. so it's, it's just over two, you know, uh, just over two, two years old, two and a quarter years old. Um, I think the, you know, in the last two and a quarter years, we've achieved we've achieved a great deal. The company now consists of about 29 people, um, many of whom are in, in um, uh, you know, uh, have been in or are in very senior positions in the uh, uh, global nuclear industry. Um, uh, the um, uh, and I think we've you know achieved a great deal in that in that two and two and a quarter year period. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the road ahead is a road which will uh, probably consist of um, uh, um, two sections. Uh, the next section that we're on at the moment uh, is a two year section, which which requires us to conduct um, uh, further development work on our uh, on our reactor system and start uh, and, and commence a formal engagement with the. Uh, Canadian regulator. Um, the, the the longer section after that is, going to, is, is about will take about five to uh, five to seven years, um, uh, and during that five to seven year period, we will be we will be we, we intend to be uh, putting shovels in the ground, uh, uh, completing our engineering work, and starting the construction of our first uh, of, of our first um, commercial power plant in Canada. And obviously, at the very start of that phase, we will have to be, uh, we, we will be in, engaging with the uh, Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission uh, to, um, uh, um, uh, you know, to advance the licensing process uh, mm-hmm. with them. So those two sections together um, uh, amount to a period of time between maybe seven, uh, seven to, to nine years from today. Um, so we envisage then with that timetable so there is this possibility that we could be commissioning our first power plant by early next decade. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, well, that's all the questions I had for you today, Simon. Um, how, how can people follow along with the terrestrial energy story if they're if they're keen to sort of see how your progression and your technology develops? Yes, we put we put a lot of time and effort into uh, into our website um, to you know, inform as much as we can about what our about our, te- uh, our technology and the possibilities for our technology. So that website is uh, is uh, terrestrialenergy.com. Perfect. Well, uh, I'm personally really interested in, in following that story, and I know a lot of our listeners will as well. So I just wanted to say thank you, thank you for, sure. for the time you spent with us today and, and sharing a bit of insight on, on what you're doing with terrestrial and, and molten salt reactors. Wonderful, Sean. Thank you very much for inviting, inviting uh, the company on the show. Appreciate it. Take care, Simon. Thanks, Sean. Next up on Energy Voices, we have Colin Moses, who's the Director of Regulatory Framework for the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. While it's a bit of a mouthful to get his title out, uh, he's one of the leading experts in uh, nuclear power and nuclear safety in Canada and works for the regulator on behalf of regulating the safety and reliability of nuclear power in Canada. So welcome to the show, Colin. Thanks for having me. So first off, what is the CNSC? What is the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission? Uh, Who are you? What authority do you have? And what role do you play in in the nuclear industry in Canada? So uh, the CNSC is Canada's independent nuclear regulator. We've been doing this job since about uh, 1946, when Canada decided that nuclear activities needed a dedicated national regulator to ensure the protection of Canadians. Essentially, you can't do anything in Canada that involves nuclear energy or nuclear substances without our oversight. Mm-hmm. So in practice, that means ensuring that any nuclear facilities or activities take the adequate measures to protect the health, safety, and security of Canadians and the environment. Mm-hmm. 
We're also charged with uh, complying with Canada's international obligations. And finally, we have a mandate for disseminating objective scientific and technical information relating to nuclear. And, and what you said that uh, responsibility for sort of Canada's role in the international industry, what is that? Who is there an international body that oversees CNSC or, or how does Canada play in that global picture? So internationally, um, Canada is committed to uh, non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. So our obligations are to work with the International Atomic Energy Agency to make sure that Canada in no way contributes to uh, nuclear weapons worldwide. So we track any material that comes out of Canada, any technology information or equipment that could have a dual purpose use and make sure that it's being used exclusively for peaceful uses. Mm -hmm. And and so with Canada's nuclear industry being exclusively focused around the, the power generation sector, um, what has been the historical record? Give us some context on maybe the size and scale of Canada's nuclear industry, um, and then there's a few follow-up questions to that. So uh, first of all, it's not only exclusive for, uh, to nuclear power. Um, you'd be surprised at how many ways that they use nuclear technologies in Canada. So, you know, most notably, of course, is the production of uh, electricity through nuclear power plants. But also they use uh, nuclear technology ex uh, extensively in hospitals for diagnosis, tests, and, uh, and treatment of cancers. So we also regulate the, the hospitals that are using those technologies. They also use nuclear extensively in research. So there's research reactors in a number of Canadian universities. Um, that use nuclear technology to look at material properties or stuff like that. So they're used really across the board, and, and anything, anybody who wants to do that is licensed by us. Awesome. That's great. Um, and, and what has been the historical safety record? Um, inherently in your name, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, there's a, a driving focus on, on the safety aspect of the nuclear industry. So um, there's obviously some very high-profile global incidents that have occurred in the nuclear uh, industry, but what has Canada's safety record been? So in Canada, the safety record for the nuclear industry is impeccable. In over 40 years of operation, there's been no accident leading to any environmental or health consequences. And if I do say so myself, that's in large part because of our regulatory oversight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe I can give you an example. Mm -hmm. At the CNSC, we certify people who work in positions of high responsibility, so people who control the nuclear reactors that are producing the electricity. It takes, on average, about eight years of training to become a CNSC-certified operator, um, which includes a whole bunch of testing and examinations throughout the process. Uh, our staff on site at nuclear power plants do over 140 detailed inspections every year. We uh, review the results of over 65,000 safety tests done by operators. Um, so we look at basically anything and oversee anything that's being done in the nuclear industry. Uh, if you want to hear more, we actually produce an annual report that uh, speaks about the performance of nuclear power plants. It covers all sorts of technical areas of oversight, like environmental protection, worker health and safety, site security, et cetera. We'll, we'll actually be discussing the report at a public meeting with the commission in August, which is also webcast through a website. Mm -hmm. and, and you might not know the, the answer to this question, but do you think that there's any source of power generation in Canada that hasn't had any environmental consequences in the past 40 years? Well, I can't really speak. I mean, we're concerned about nuclear and we're concerned about nuclear safety, so I can't really speak to any other sources of energy. But I can tell you that I'm confident in the safety of the nuclear industry. And one of the things that uh, earlier in the show Jason Donov brought up was the fact that um, 
for for the Fukushima incident, it was dealing with uh, a tsunami of a magnitude that had never been experienced before in Japan, and and how one of the challenges of nuclear power is in preparing for what to date in human history has never happened before. And I, I found that to be really fascinating because it's it's this sort of it's blowing this conversation up into this more societal level look at like what is the long-term potential what are these thousand year events that might take place and so i wanted to get your perspective as the regulator on how do you set the parameters for what may be reasonable like what we could expect from violent weather from earthquakes like how do you set those parameters or how do you gauge what the the upper limit of the the force of mother nature might be well, I'm a mechanical uh, engineer by training. So in engineering terms, it's actually pretty standard practice. You look at what happened in the past, you build a frequency or hazard profile, apply a factor of safety to make sure you've covered any uncertainties, and that gives you what kind of loads you need to consider in the design of what it, whatever it is you're designing. Mm-hmm. The trick is figuring out what could happen versus which is what's truly fantastical. So I don't know if you remember that movie, 2012, so the whole world flooded. They had to build arcs to float around the world for several years. That's fantasy. But it's not fantasy to think that earthquakes could get bigger, weather warmer or colder, storms stronger. You need to take that into account when you build and design these facilities. Mm-hmm. The biggest lesson learned we had from the Fukushima accident is that no matter how much analysis you do, there might be something truly unexpected. So after the accident, we asked the question, what if? You know, forget the probability arguments, forget all the redundant protective measures that you have in place that would stop it from ever getting there. Let's just say you're there. Let's say it happens. You're in this hypothetical worst-case scenario. Well, what happens? What could you do to stop it? How would you respond? What tools, equipment, connections do you need to make sure you can minimize any consequences? Mm -hmm. So we asked all those questions and made sure our licensees had the processes, training, and equipment they might need in such a situation. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's not this way, but I can't help but picture just a group of CNSC engineers in a boardroom just shouting out what if, and then doing thought exercises on the craziest things that could happen. Well, that's pretty much what we did. You need to plan for the unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Um, well, that's it for the questions I, I had for you. I just, I really wanted to get a sense of sort of where the current regulations and, and safety uh, precautions were in the nuclear industry in Canada. And, and I really appreciate the, the, the insight that you've given us today. My pleasure. Okay, well, we'll take care and we, we look forward to having you guys back on a future show. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Hey listeners, I'm Alex McRae-Korobkov and I'm the Executive Director of the Alberta Youth Council on the Environment. The Alberta Youth Council on the Environment started around a year and a half ago and we aim to help environmentally passionate Albertan youth express their passion, let their voices be heard, and make change in issues that they believe in. This segment, which is part of our larger Youth Forum podcast, will feature a variety of youth voices around the topic of nuclear energy. David Campbell, this episode's reporter, pulled aside Edmonton youth for a quick interview about their beliefs on nuclear energy. First, David asks how informed they were. Then, David read the following vignette. According to a Government of Alberta report, the life cycle emissions of carbon dioxide from nuclear power generation, including mining, processing, uranium enrichment, and transport, is similar in magnitude to the life cycle emissions from renewable energy sources such as wind power. On the other hand, the spent fuel produced in creating nuclear energy must spend 500 to 1,000 years for its radioactivity to reach normal levels, which is commonly achieved by permanent burial deep beneath the Earth's crust. 
One kilogram of coal can produce 8 kilowatt hours, whereas one kilogram of uranium-235 can produce 24 million kilowatt hours. Because of this, very minimal amounts of uranium mining are required to produce an immense amount of power. Sources claim that nuclear energy costs between 3.5 to 6 cents per kilowatt hour to produce, whereas coal energy costs on average 6.3 cents per kilowatt hour. However, initial costs of opening a nuclear power facility are quite immense, costing up to 6.2 billion to open. When run properly, a nuclear power plant will release 0.02 millisieverts per year to humans living near the plant. Coal production releases 0.2 millisieverts per year to humans living near the plant. That's 10 times the amount of radiation being released from nuclear energy production. However, a malfunction in a nuclear reaction facility can be far more severe than that of a coal energy production facility. After reading this short vignette, David asked them whether they'd support nuclear energy in Alberta and whether they believe it'd be a step forward in environmental sustainability or a step backward. Let's see what one of these youth, Victoria, had to say. So before we get started, how much do you think you know about nuclear energy? Mm, not much, probably the basic ones. Basic ones, so tell me what you know so far. Well, like, I feel like people get affected from factories and stuff that have problems, I guess, with their security. They affect the environment, and so people are the ones who get affected by that. Like, they start getting diseases, and most people die of it, and it's really sad. Okay, interesting. So, that's actually a myth. If a nuclear power plant is operating functionally mm -hmm. and properly, that won't actually happen. So, let me read this to you. Um, so, according to the David then went on to Alberta, read the little vignette, following it up with another question. Based on the above statements, would you support nuclear power in Alberta? Why or why not? I think I would support it just because people would um, be healthier and they wouldn't have as much problems. And I know that it, the cost of the reparations and uh, how you maintain the factories and stuff, it's going to be really expensive. But I think that taxes and people would support that just in order to like maintain our environment clean and safe for everyone. So you do believe yes. that nuclear energy would be a step forward in, in terms of environmental sustainability? I do believe that it's going to help a bunch of people if we allow this to happen. Okay. Here's another conversation that David had with a high school student named so Ben. So how much do you think you know about nuclear energy generation right now? Uh, relatively little in the whole scheme of things. Okay, but you'd say you have enough information to have an opinion? Yeah, I would say so. Awesome. So... Uh, before we did this interview, we showed you a quick little preface of nuclear energy, so just debunking a couple of myths, yep. something that we're doing for everyone in this project, just so that we all have the same basis we're coming from. And based on what you know from the past and what you learned in that preface, would you support nuclear power in Alberta? Why or why not? I've always kind of supported having uh, nuclear energy in Alberta, mostly because Compared to a lot of places in the world, Alberta is a relatively ideal location for it. I mean, lack of fault lines and other natural things that could cause disasters make it a prime location. As well, we have a lot of uranium that we don't use. We mine tons of it, but mostly sell it off, so we're not really taking advantage of that. So I, we'd have tons of it to use to actually generate the electricity. We would never really run out. Um, so ideally, we'd be perfectly set up to 
use the nuclear energy we created. Awesome. Okay, and do you believe that the implementation of nuclear energy in Alberta would be a step forward in environmental sustainability or a step back? I think it'd be a good step forward. Right now, environmentally sustainable um, methods of producing electricity are pretty hit or miss, right? You've got nuclear energy, which creates massive amounts of radioactive waste while admittedly being much cleaner than coal or any other form, uh, which actually produces enough energy to sustain large areas such as Alberta. Um, but you also have things like wind, hydroelectric, and solar, which right now don't produce quite enough energy to sustain our needs. So I think it'd be a good kind of mid-ground until to use until the other forms like wind, water, and solar actually could produce more energy than they do to could produce enough to actually sustain us, right? I don't think it'd be a good long-term goal. We're going to run out of mines to hide all the waste in, so we would have to change our methods at some point or another. So I think just using it for the foreseeable future would be great in cutting down our CO2 emissions, but it's not a good long-term uh, replacement, I guess, for the coal-burning energy we have now. Awesome. Okay, thank you so much, Ben. Here's a conversation David had with Sunny, who knew quite a bit about nuclear power. Nuclear power is one of those complicated topics. Um, the benefits of it are numerous in that it's actually like really good for the environment. Um, but it does cut out a lot of the issues we see with things like coal and non-renewable um, source energy. And it's probably more, I don't know, effective than some of the other uh, methods we have just because it's a very the energy stored within one like radioactive particle is a whole lot more than what you can get from pretty much anywhere else um it's probably one of the cheapest ways to get energy however i do feel that there's a serious concern when it comes to how these plants are managed um a lot of the issues that have come up with nuclear power has been mainly due to mismanagement and planning, I guess. I mean, the biggest, some of the biggest disasters could have been like easily averted. For example, Chernobyl um, was almost entirely a mistake um, of oversight that led to the meltdown itself. And um, in the case of Fukushima, um, in the case of Fukushima, um, some foresight, um, some simple decisions could have prevented a lot of it in that the reactor itself was way too close to the shoreline, um, not giving it enough of a buffer in the event of a tsunami, um, which is pretty common um, for the region, as well as some of the building structures could have been a bit different, from what I understand. And I know there have been like a number of these accidents, um, almost entirely due to just oversight, cost cutting, and poor planning. Nuclear energy is, um, is probably the way forward. There have to definitely be a lot more regulations, a lot more thought, and a lot more planning that goes into this, um, kind of making sure that every single basis is covered. I know that the regulations for these plants... Sunny continued to express her concern for the regulations surrounding nuclear power. Thank you, David. Here's awesome. David's conversation with Sydney, another youth from Edmonton. Nuclear energy. Yeah. What do you know about it? Well, I would say I know enough about nuclear energy to have a informed opinion on it. Awesome. That's good to hear. Definitely a plus. Yeah. So, since you believe you know a fair bit about nuclear energy so far, mm -hmm. at least enough to make an informed opinion and iterate that to anyone, <laughs> would you support nuclear power in Alberta? Why or why not? 
I believe it's a good short-term uh, way of dealing with the need for power in Alberta, especially because we have a lot of resources really close to us and we have a good environment to put up a nuclear power plant in where a lot of um, effects of nature and other things like so we're not by an ocean or anything so that wouldn't play a factor in it and don't tend to get a lot of earthquakes here so that's also pretty good that would take out a lot of um, effects that nature would have on it yeah take out a margin for error yes it would take out a margin for error awesome yeah. do you believe it would be a step forward in environmental sustainability yes I believe it would be uh, because it's a cleaner source of energy than coal is right now at the same time I think we could use a great deal of the money that would be put into making a nuclear power plant uh, into funding research into more sustainable uh, forms of energy such as wind power and solar po power because um, obviously uranium will run out and will run out of places to bury it into the Earth's crust and that's not really a good long-term solution so a lot of that money may end up be being seen as wasted down the road. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sydney. Here's David's Thank interview you. with a high school student named Taylor. How much do you think you know about nuclear energy? Um, I don't know if like too much but I do think I know enough about it to have an informed decision. Awesome. Okay so based on what you currently know about nuclear power uh, would you support it in Alberta? Why or why not? I would support it in Alberta um, because I believe it is more environmentally friendly, has less of a carbon footprint. So I believe that'd be a good step into the future for Alberta. Awesome. Anything regarding that that you... Um, see, I feel, I feel like nuclear energy would be good in Canada because I know it was mentioned earlier that where we have a lot of uranium in Saskatchewan so we have the resources to set it up here and Alberta is a rich country so starting rich province, or province. <laughs> rich province so starting up a like a nuclear facility is expensive but we could cover the costs so it would be very very doable in Alberta awesome so do you believe that implementing nuclear power generation would be a a good thing in terms of environmental sustainability or something that might be not so good? I feel like it probably wouldn't be so good because you're you're developing technology that isn't advancing like solar energy or hydroelectric or like um, geothermal energy because those are truly renewable whereas uranium like uranium ore there's only so much of it in the ground so once it runs out we'll be back to the starting board so mm -hmm. I feel like it probably would be a step forward for now but in the long run it wouldn't be awesome okay. and finally so here's david's conversation with mike who offered a different outlook on nuclear energy i don't think nuclear energy in alberta would be useful in any way simply because of the already existing infrastructure that we have for fossil fuel utilization um say in a place like uh, province like Saskatchewan, which has very stable uh, land to it, as well as a uh, fair number of open water areas, and not uh, set up infrastructure for any kind of uh, resource utilization. Nuclear energy would be a benefit to them, but because Alberta is already so heavily invested in fossil fuels and the development of, it, it doesn't make sense in my mind. Awesome. So do you believe if we implemented 
nuclear energy, would it be a step forward or backward in terms of environmental sustainability? Definitely a step forward uh, if there's proper care to uh, treat the waste, the nuclear waste, uh, responsibly. Um, the worst thing that could happen uh, in nuclear energy is meltdown. But because Canada is so vast and there's so much uh, land based off of tectonic plate shifts, um, it's definitely safe uh, for Canada to utilize this in some way. Uh, All right, so that's just about everything we have for you today. But hopefully it gave you a little bit of insight into what Albertan youth are thinking about nuclear energy. If you want to hear more, check us out at albertoyc.org, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash albertoyc, or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash albertoyc. Thank you so much for having us, Sean. We hope to hear from you soon. And with that, we close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair. Previous episodes can be found at bit.ly slash energy voices or by searching energy voices in iTunes or your favorite podcast service. Share thoughts, questions, and comments by using hashtag energy voices on Facebook or on Twitter.